Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary, the show that explores the globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. I'm your host and resident rave dad, Paul Brooks. Rave Dad's Diary broadcasts on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Pagani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Welcome to episode 16 of Rave Dad's Diary. Recently, I was talking to a friend and they told me they were dating somebody who was a secret DJ. And I laughed because I knew exactly what they were talking about. Some of the biggest heads I know in dance music and many of the best DJs and producers are pretty low key and they hold down careers in completely different fields. In episode 10 of Rave Dad's Diary, I spoke to DJs who were pivoting into different careers because of the pandemic. On today's episode, I'm exploring the opposite. I'm talking to Joanna Magic, a Calgary-based entrepreneur with a passion for music, marketing, and movement. Live music and fitness and movement classes have been hit pretty hard by the pandemic, but Joanna figures now is the right time to launch a DJ career. I'll talk to Joanna about what led to that decision, and we'll reminisce about the raves of our lives. But first, I'm talking to Andrew Birdall, a.k.a. Birdie. He's a Calgary-based producer and DJ originally from the UK, and he's returning to dance music after a long hiatus. Listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW, and my name is Paul Brooks. I'm speaking with Andrew Birdall, aka Birdie, over Zoom. Hi, Birdie. Hey, how's it going? It's going very well. Thanks for speaking with me today. No, my pleasure. Absolutely. It's going to be great. So, you just released a record called Satellite after a, a pretty long hiatus in the music industry. Why are you releasing music now? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, it's actually kind of an interesting story. So I was aware and had been for quite a while that I'd lost my connection with music. and um, But I hadn't really consciously kind of done anything about it. I guess, you know, regular life, job, kids, that kind of thing had kind of taken away my um, focus on music for quite a while. Um, and I was kind of getting some of the basic, basic equipment back together and um, had downloaded the, like a new version of the software that I wanted to use and was kind of thinking about it, but not really getting my act together for quite a while. I do quite a busy job. I actually work in the satellite communications industry, hence the title of the uh, album. 
And um, so it was always an excuse to not do it, right? And um, a friend of mine said to me, well, how about we give you a deadline? I want one track done by the end of January 2020. And I was like, okay, fine. And that seemed to be what I needed. I needed someone to give me a deadline and hold me accountable for it. And so I managed to put together a track. Wasn't a track that ended up on the album, but um, was the one that got me going. And and what I found was um, it really allowed me to switch off from everything else in my life. And I'd forgotten that like creating had that ability to do that, where you could be lost completely in the music, lost in what you were doing, not aware of anything else in your life. You're not worried about bills or the kids' school grades or, you know, any of that kind of stuff that's going on at work, you were just gone. And it made me realize, why the hell have I let this go in my life? Like I'd lost a part of me that used to drive me every day. And I think it just reignited that that passion for it. Straight after that, coronavirus hits. So then I'm kind of like, well, you know, there's not a whole lot I can do out there. It's not like I can go and hang out with friends or go out for dinner or go to a show or travel anywhere. So what am I going to do with my time? And I think that just really helped me to kind of focus, okay, I can kind of go back and do music after work. I can, I can actually spend that time in that state of kind of flow and be able to kind of disconnect from all the, the pressures of life. Um, and it was super beneficial for my mental health. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, we're all, we've all been touched in this pandemic Mentally, I, I personally believe, you know, some people in a big way, some way, people in a small way, but I think we've all been feeling that, that drain on our resources mentally. And I think for me, it was a it was super healthy thing for me to do in that time. So, yeah, before I knew it, summer was coming. I had like six, seven tracks down and I was like, okay, I, I need another deadline. So I set myself a deadline of having everything done and everything finished by Labor Day because I knew that work would get busy after that. And I managed to hit that target and uh, breathe a sigh of relief and go, okay, the project's completed. And now it feels like it, it needs to remain a part of my life, um, period. <laughs> so that's the story, basically, of what brought me back. Tell me a little bit about your musical life before your career in satellite communication. Uh, tell me about Baby Mammoth. Yeah, so Baby Mammoth was uh, a double act that I did with a, a guy called Mark Blissenden. And we were... We're both living in Hull in the UK, so that's up, for those that don't know, in the north in uh, in East Yorkshire. Um, and I'd been, it was always the big city near me, and I, I was down there for university and um, basically came across him because I initially, initially I was into sort of very noisy indie music and was in bands like that for a little while while I was in high school. Um, I then kind of drifted into hip hop, which then drifted towards house. And I've met him and a number of DJs um, at a local club. So we got together um, and, and became friends. And he was basically saying to me, well, I've got all of this equipment. I aren't using because I don't have enough space. And I had a spare room at my, my place. So I was like, okay, well, let's set up your uh, studio equipment there. And really, I was just kind of like, I don't know anything about this, but I, I'm used to now to play guitar. So maybe I can you know, do something with this, with this guy and it, maybe it'll be fun. And so we kind of set up the, the studio, started knocking a couple of tunes together um, and we were connected into the Pork Recordings label at the time, which in Hull, um, back in the day, like we're talking sort of mid-90s, late 90s, um, was kind of an underground label that was doing quite well. And one of the big acts there, Fila Brasilia, was 
was doing very well, particularly at remixing. So they were getting huge kind of uh, jobs with people like Radiohead or um, I think Simple Minds, they did one with those guys and some some really huge acts they were getting picked up for remixing. And that was bringing a lot of um, interest in the label. Um, and again, we, we were fortunate enough to be connected to those guys. So we managed to convince the, the label boss, Porky, to give us a, a, a shot at our first album, um, which we released, I think it was 97, um, and that was called 10,000 Years Beneath the Streets, kind of linking to Baby Mammoth. We originally thought Baby Mammoth would be the album title. Um, Porky did astutely say, that's your, uh, that's your um, sort of band title. What are, you, what are you on about? Yeah. So we're like, oh, okay. Um, and then that kicked off a very um, uh, sort of uh, hectic period. So sort of between university time and um, the rest of the day, I almost focused on it like a job. And for me, I was really conscious of putting in that effort to understand this craft. So we were probably knocking out two albums a year and got through seven releases on Pork, one further album on um, a label called Echo Chamber in Vienna. Um, and through that, I did eventually feel like I wanted to kind of release my own. So I did a, uh, the first Birdie album back in 2001, which was released on Sunshine Enterprises, another Viennese label, um, and also did a collaboration with one of the Sofa Surfers, which was a, an act in, in Vienna too. And it was all kind of centered around the Kruger and Dolphmeister type sound. I knew those guys, we'd done remixes for them. Um, and so kind of Vienna was the next sort of city that really kind of influenced me outside of, you know, the people that we were kind of working with in Hull. So after this period of time, there's quite a break in your discography. Uh, what, what was the decision to step back from your music career and focus on other things? Do you remember that time in your life? Yeah, so it was kind of interesting because it was more circumstantial than a, a decision. Um, so what happened was um, at the time I was married to uh, an Australian woman and she wanted to move back to, the, uh, to Australia. And um, I kind of reached this decision point of like, well, either I do that or I don't, but um, what do I want to do? So I figured, you know, this seems like a, you know, something in my life that, you know, is an opportunity. So why not? What's the worst that can happen? I come home if it doesn't work out. So moved to Perth in Western Australia in 2002 um, and kind of thought, well, maybe, you know, internet's starting to become a thing. Maybe I can continue to work, which I could um, on, on music, et cetera, and certainly production. Um, but the big big issue there was in Perth, you're, you're three hours flight from the next city, you know, let alone <laughs> uh, anything else. Like Adelaide is the nearest city. It's three hours flight away. So, you know, you're very, very remote. And whilst, you know, uh, you've got maybe 20 million people living in there at the time in, in Australia, it's not exactly got the biggest sort of music scene there. There is a music scene, but it's very much more kind of local and based around different sounds. So when I got there, it quickly became apparent to me that, you know, DJing to sort of fund uh, lifestyle was going to be difficult to do from there. Um, no one wanted to kind of use you as the overseas act because you were now living in the country. So it wasn't like you could go there and get paid the kind of wage you normally would do when you were touring. So, you know, kind of realized I needed to get a proper job um, and, you know, couldn't continue to support myself just on, on music alone. Um, so went down the career path and so it kind of just organically happened. It wasn't like I made a decision to let it go. And for a while I tried to keep doing that whilst I was working, 
did get like an EP out, I think around 2005, um, with uh, the Viennese label I've been working with. Um, but then kids came along. And so work, kids, there's always a hundred other things kind of pulling you away from that artistic creation point. And I just lost sight of it. And, um, yeah, it's kind of sad in a way because, you know, I w- wasn't even listening to much music. It was almost like it had gone from my life completely as a concept. Um, and so getting it back has been, you know, quite inspiring and quite amazing. And, you know, I feel like I've got that childlike kind of awe about everybody else's music too. Like I'm rediscovering what everybody else has been doing and, and, and loving that. You talked about the the mental health benefits you're experiencing through making music and and having this creative outlet again. Uh, I'm wondering uh, if you've learned or or what else you've learned or relearned through this experience of producing the album and putting it out into the world. Uh, (laughs) Kind of relearned how, uh, how, how anxious you can get when you put it out and how, you know, this, this whole, concept of uh like self-confidence how it comes and goes like you know i can be in the midst of like creating something and just feel so confident that people are going to connect with that sound as you're creating it and as you're bringing it together and you feel super confident and excited about people hearing it and then at the same time you release it with this kind of feeling of like oh what if it isn't any good and as, as if there's a way to grade something empirically in that way, which obviously there isn't, but in your mind, you can still become anxious. So I kind of relearned the fact that, you know, I have to deal with my own anxiety about putting it out there and what kind of feedback you're going to get because you'd never really know until it's out there. And some people would just be like, eh, whatever, or, you know, I actually don't like that. Or, and some people might really like it, but it's always kind of nerve wracking to put your work out there. Cause it's almost like you're saying, here's a piece of me, everybody else going to have an opinion about it. So I think one of the things I relearned was how anxious I get around putting it out there and how strange it is to feel super confident about it one moment and completely anxious about it the next. <laughs> that is one of those things. Um, I also think what I learned was, you know, when you've been producing or if you've been writing, et cetera, if you've had a break, you can start to think, well, can I do it again? Like, can I even get there? Can I finish something? Can I create something that means anything? And to kind of feel a little bit like, well, it is a bit like riding a bike. It's, it, it can be in you and you can remember some of the techniques and the processes you used to have to go through to bring this art together. Um, that has that does stick with you, and um, so that was that was really comforting because I was very worried at the beginning, like, what if I can't do this anymore? And to find that you know you you can do it, and in fact, maybe you can you can even do it better this time because you're you're less influenced by everybody else. That's one of the benefits, I guess, of not being in music is I haven't been kind of felt pressured by other people's art to create something either in that same vein or. You know, I haven't been putting things out there and wondering, well, is someone going to buy mine versus this person? I've been kind of completely isolated, so it could really become quite pure. So that's that's been a, a positive out of that. Well, I've listened to Satellite a few times, and I think it's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for speaking with me. Can you pick a track from Satellite for us to finish our conversation on? 100%. It has to be Satellite 47. Um 
one of the obviously the title track probably of the album almost and and referencing the the age I was when I finally recorded it um but yeah definitely that for me is a good one um just because I like the the slow-mo kind of house feel and uh was really happy with some of the melodies in there too so satellite 47 it is for me thank you birdie thank you
Hello, my name is Ohama, and I grew up on a potato farm in Western Canada. And you're listening to CGSW 90.9. You're listening to 90.9 FM CJSW. The show is called Rave Dad's Diary, and I'm your host, Paul Brooks. We're listening to the track Who's Your Babby by Joanna Magic. And up next, you're going to hear my conversation with the artist. Hi, Joanna. It's really good to see your face over Zoom. It's really good to see your face and your very impressive climbing arms. I think your audience needs to know that there are great arms behind the scenes. <laughs> Thanks, Joanna. Joanna, I've seen you bounding around festivals and nightclubs for a long time, but when did you start DJing and producing? I began DJing um, 11 10 years ago. So in 2011 is when I purchased my first DJ controller, which is a really portable version of DJ gear for those who don't know what a DJ controller is. And producing is much newer. So I would be a pandemic producer. So the gift of time through the pandemic, I'm able, I was able to branch out into that. But I want to highlight that my love of music is super long. So Ever since I've had an allowance, I've been collecting music. So I had those big, thick CD binders growing up. Um, yep. And CGSW, I had a stint as a volunteer in the 90s. I'm super aging myself, but I volunteered, yeah, in the mid to late 90s at uh, where you are located right now. Uh, were, were you on air? Uh, no, I did some sit-ins. It was mostly, I was really into punk rock growing up. So, um, and bands in general. So I would be, I volunteered for the 
for the fundraising drive and was just kind of around the scene for friends that did have shows. Well, welcome back to CJSW. Thank you. It is an honor. It's like your home crowd, you know, it's a big deal. And I also wrote for Vox and Fast Forward. So sorry, there was that part too. So doing um, CD reviews, that sort of thing back in the day. You're ahead. (laughs) So I I noticed last year your live streaming started popping off and uh, in a in a sea of live streams, your videos really caught my attention. And we'll talk more about the aesthetic of your live streams in a minute. But why did cool. you start to double down on, on DJing during the pandemic? Um, lots of things had to come together for that decision. So I mentioned the gift of time a few minutes ago. So with the pandemic, your regular cadence, everyone's regular lifestyle was altered in some way. Most people would agree with that, I think. So there was, for me, the gift of time. So I've always had these three things I focused on, which is music, movement, and marketing. The three M's sound nice, but marketing encompasses everything from work I do with brand building and business building and entrepreneurship. So I've owned a couple of businesses. I've worked for big brands in the sport and entertainment space. So I've had those three three things really, really on the go, but pandemic derailed that. So I had some extra time. I couldn't focus on my uh, fitness uh, business. So I took that and doubled down on my love of music. Um, So the gift of time. And then I'd say the two other things, the last one, the most important one, I'll say for the end. So the second thing that occurred was there's a shift in how people interacted with music and the platforms they were using. So the whole engagement with dance music changed during the pandemic. So it shifted to online. You had a more direct artery to um, an audience and the technology was fascinating to me. So I was as excited about Twitch as I was when MySpace first came out and more so than when I experienced Facebook or Instagram, I was really hyped on the interactivity on Twitch, which is where I stream, which is primarily a gaming platform, but now they're really building out a music presence. Um, But the third thing, and I'm a huge champion of this, is just your mindset, how powerful your mindset is and what you decide to do and what doors you open up for yourself. So those other things came into play, but I think with the great community that I have around me in the scene and um, just people that support what I do, I think it helped me realize that maybe I do have something to offer here. I love selecting music and playing music and creating a real good vibe around around me and situations I put myself into. So I think the mindset that I could contribute to this scene in some way was really powerful. Um, so, and, and it was a really weird space to be in because there's so much talent in Calgary, in Canada, in America, in this space. I think of local superheroes like seasick and how he works turntables through to scratch bastard, how he works that through to, legendary um, tastemakers like small town DJs. And I'm like, how, what, what do I even have to add to that? So it was cool to think that I could um, round out 
the offering in that area. Um, yeah. And you got to start somewhere to go somewhere. So I think that mindset shift was really big in deciding to put myself out there online and have people like watch me pause it. They can see what I'm doing with my hands, which really freaked me out the first time I went online. But, um, so that's why I doubled down on DJing. Short answer, Paul, real short answer. You have one of the most eye-catching streams I've experienced, and you really tie together the the musical sounds, your excellent fashion taste, uh, really cool visual art. How did you develop the aesthetic of your DJ brand? Uh, So I mentioned my little pyramid earlier, like music, movement, and marketing, so... It's been part of my profession for a while to understand um, how to build a brand, the aesthetic. I used to be an athlete and long, long, long time ago in a galaxy far away, I was injured a lot in my sport. So my downtime, I learned a lot of software, which is still something I encourage people to invest in, to not be scared of learning new technology, new software, because you never know what it may creep up and really support what you're doing. So um, and that's probably why I really liked Twitch because you can merge all those things. My love of visual design, aesthetic. Um, and if people are going to watch you and take their precious time and dedicate it to you, I feel like you should make it as banging as possible, like make it really quality. And it's time well spent, even if that moment is all they get is that like nice moment and there's no future reward. I think that is a reward in itself. So putting the effort into changing up your graphics, um, taking care in how you look and present yourself. I'm selling a party. I'm selling a fun time. Well, I'm not selling anything. I, sh- I shouldn't use that word, but I'm curating a good time. So I like it when the apparel uh, also reflects that and that you have fun with how you look. Um, it's advice I used to give to artists when I worked behind the scenes in the industry. If they were very stressed or nervous, I, you know, sometimes it helps for someone to put it in perspective and say, hey, we're here for a good time. This is a good time. And that's what people want out of this. So remembering that this is also what I'm doing here um, and not worry, being worried too much about looking serious, I think helps me too. You're really good on the mic, and you get on the mic way more than other artists I've seen on their Twitch streams. Uh, Where did those skills come from? Getting on the mic could be a good and bad thing. I I know that there's a preference for viewers, some like just to let the music breathe, and they probably find my frequency of dialogue really annoying, (laughs) but I think... I'm a fan of just being who you are and you will find your crew. So yeah, I do like to talk ad lib. Um, and that probably comes from just genetics, but I do have some, a professional background in it. So I, which is probably why I have a professional background in it. I used to be the kid that you'd separate out from the, the classroom because you chatted to everyone around you. But I, yeah, I've had the chance to be around great announcers and I developed in a sports announcing career. So I worked for the U.S. Open of Snowboarding, which is the holy grail of action sports announcing. It was at the time. I hope it still is. It's a beautiful event. So, yeah, announcing the U.S. Open in United States for a long time. Also, that led to an opportunity at Vancouver 2010. So announcing the Olympic Winter Games, the 
all the snowboarding events. So most of the work was action sports related. I did the Calgary Stampede as well, but um, amazing. So I transitioned from sports to sports announcing to turntables. Paul, that's the trajectory. <laughs> let's let's talk more about movement and 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 fitness and, yeah. and dance music. T- tell me about how they all relate in in your world. Uh, so that's a great segue from what we were just talking about, like that transition from sport to um, to the dance floor. So movement has been a huge part of what I do. I'm a big ambassador for the mind-body connection. So how, um, how well you treat your body, whether you like moving it, climbing, or um, in a more structured environment like a gym through to dance floor is such a positive impact on how you feel mentally. So I like that two-way conversation from mind to body, from body to mind. And uh, working in the sports space, the soundtracks I felt were representative of maybe more the mainstream, but I was always drawn to counterculture, underground sound. I loved the cutting edge of those scenes. I felt there was such life and genuineness and and uh, lots of experimentation that just apply them to more of the mainstream fitness settings. So when I started to um, transition from athlete to coach, I was really into making great soundtracks and exposing people to music that they would either not experience at all in a fitness setting um, or yeah, they wouldn't really be exposed to it. So I wanted to bring in um, underground house music to above ground workout classes. So that, and that parlayed into a business venture of mine. So yeah, the two worlds work together for me. You crossed my mind early in the pandemic, just because uh-huh. like when I was, you know, thinking like, I wonder what so-and-so is doing. I wonder what, I wonder what Joanne is doing. You're just such yeah. uh, uh, an energetic and, and athletic person. How did you uh, adapt to the first stages of the lockdown? What did you do to, to keep sane and, and well? Yeah, well, I am lucky that I do have that outlet for physical activity. That is huge. Just moving in snack size bites is big for people. So doing a 10 minute something like a 10 minute jump rope or just a run, taking advantage of being outside, whether it's minus 30 or plus 30, that is so huge for positive outlook. So I'm lucky that I was already in that space and I did double down on that too. So I trained a little bit more again, cause I wasn't in my fitness business as much. Um, I also have a tendency to be a problem solver. Like I'll figure it out is my attitude. Um, so I, within a week of the closure of our business, we transitioned to online and then I was streaming DJ stuff two or three months after lockdown. So if it happened mid-March, I think by, what is that, May? Is that two months? I'm not a math magician. <laughs> so um, I was uh, online and the, the streams are still online. They're, they're very basic. and um, But that's cool with me. I'm okay with putting myself out there and people maybe, you know, having an opinion that would maybe discourage others from going for it. But I'm a big fan of you got to start somewhere to go somewhere. So um, 
I think maybe when the pandemic hit, a lot of people were trying to find their their footing. A lot of people still are, but um, they all have a little glimmer of what they could go after. And I hope they chase it and aren't too worried about the finish line. Or I like to say what people in the cheap seats think, because um, yeah, you, you'll have a great reward if you just go after it. That's a motivational fitness person coming out. <laughs> no, it's great. Your viewers are like changing the dial right now, but um, no, yeah, I, it's I important. It. That's really important. <laughs> and I think that that's a really uh, humble approach because some people will be really quick to erase their earlier work or, you know, they don't want to uh, necessarily show the process. But uh, I, I like y- your approach that you want to show people that you have been developing these skills and now when I watch your live streams, they're super entertaining and and really tight. So uh, to your point, you know, I, you can compare and contrast where you were a year ago to where you are now. And uh, it's really uh, it's really exciting. And I'm really happy for you. Thank, thank you. This interview has been so uh, nice. Like you've point. <laughs> pointed out all the the successes and the the positive progress and there's been steps back for sure like there's a lot of uh money that you invest that you know a lot of people don't have those funds that they had pre-pandemic so you're investing you're taking a risk that way and you don't know if one person will show up for your stream even at the beginning and for me I was clear on what the goal was of my streams and it was sort of uh, a music gym for me so I wasn't looking for you know, vanity markers or a specific audience out of the gate. It was sort of my chance to keep doing what I love, keep going after it. And I believe if you just keep moving forward, persistence will, you know, will work in your favor. But, um, but yeah, I feel for me, it was a training ground to keep um, my skills fresh, be involved in that world um, for when things reopen. So um, that also keeps things in check for me. I don't think I was answering a specific question there, but um, I just want to share that that was part of my process too in doing these uh, these streams. Uh, awesome, and I mean, I'll let you in on a secret. This, okay. you know, Rave Dad's Diary is a yes. similar vehicle for me as as you just described. You know, okay, you know, sharpening skills, test testing, experimenting, trying out new things, and and mm-hmm. uh, also just uh, you know, just staying out there, doing this type of project or whatever project people are thinking about it's you yeah putting yourself out there you know you got to start somewhere to go somewhere vibe and building it bit by bit you don't acquire all the gear and all the knowledge within a week it does take time so you know if you're looking at someone's stream and there's so many great streams out there mine is I've so far I want to go there's so many wrinkles I want to iron out um and I know that will take time to build I can't pump out that that end goal in a week it's it's just a process so hopefully people are understand that and and get after it and build it slowly whatever it is they want to build whether it's a dj career or something else one of the streams i've seen you involved in is femme house fridays tell me a little bit about that so i'm so pumped on femme house friday it's a group out of uh, America. Um, the founder, her name is LP Giobi, and she's known 
as the she's known for many things. She has a show on Diplo's Revolution. She is the DJ for the duo called Sophie Tucker. A lot of people know Sophie Tucker and their hit song Purple Hat. So she's connected with that whole crew. They're super fun. Um, and Fem House Friday is all about elevating and exposing and providing resources for underrepresented um, genders in the music dance music scene. So that would mean woman, but also includes trans or non-binary um, artists. So they use their big audience, so LPGOB, Sophie Tucker, use their big audience to shine a light on up and coming DJs, producers, um, female DJs and producers. So yeah, I knocked on their door and showed them some demos and they brought me in to their house. So every other week I get to um, play music as part of their collective, which I'm really hyped on. It's such a great initiative. And I think if I hadn't done all those, I think I'm at my 30th magic hour stream and I've done about 10 other streams. So 40, 40 shows, I wouldn't have any content to show them and to get, um, my foot in the door with them. So it's an honor. And I've probably met more female DJs and producers in the last two months than I have in years, like as far as actual conversations and closer connections through the internet and through Twitch, which is um, really crazy. So when things reopen, I feel like there'll be real friendships that will develop in real life and we'll, you know, enjoy a hot dog at a festival kind of um, friendships. Mm. Is that a deep friendship? Festival, dog festival, festival dogs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Joanna, for, for chatting with me today. It's been a pleasure catching up with you on the radio. We're going to listen to a mix of yours to finish off the show. If anybody wants to connect with you online, how do they do it? Uh, P.S. Paul, thanks so much for having me. I love what you're doing for all the music crew in the city. It's so, so cool. Um, thanks. And people can connect with me on Twitch. I'm live every week, a couple times, and it's twitch.tv backslash Joanna Magic, and magic is spelled with a K, M-A-G-I-K, and I'd love if you guys sign up for my e-newsletter because it is the sure shot to have a conversation with me, and I'm working on always giving you guys cool things, prizes, passes, VIP content, so let's keep in touch. Thank you so much.
90.9 FM, CJSW, episode 16 of Rave Dad's Diary is coming to a close. Rave Dad's Diary is produced and hosted by me, Paul Brooks. The show is produced on Treaty 7 land at CJSW, 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta. Season 1 theme music is Orchestral Lab by Guido, released on Punch Drunk Records. The Rave Dad's Diary logo is by Homesick. Follow the show on Instagram at Rave Dad's Diary. If you're listening live, Ears Wide Shut is coming up next. Keep it locked. 90.9 FM, CJSW. and open your mind. We're getting a little weird on the reference desk today. This is the Reference Desk, a program dedicated to digging out little bits of musical gold from the CJSW library. Today, I've pulled out a compilation album of music by Omar Rodriguez Lopez, who many of you know is the guitarist and founding member of the Mars Volta. Other notable projects of his include At the Drive-In, Antimask, and Bosnian Rainbows. But today, we're examining Omar's work as a solo artist. So for those of you who've never heard of Omar or the Mars Volta, here's a really quick summary. So at just 17 years old, Omar decides he's going to hitchhike across America. Somewhere along the way, or possibly multiple somewheres, Omar picks up an opiate addiction. He eventually gets back in touch with his good friend, Cedric Bixler-Zavala, who convinces him to come back home to El Paso. 
the help of Cedric, Omar was able to turn his life around and eventually join at the drive-in as a bassist and backup vocalist, eventually switching to guitar. not made public, Omar and Cedric would eventually leave at the drive-in to focus on other projects, the most prominent and best-known one being the Mars Volta. Years go on, Omar has a lot of success, some tragedies, and so much creative energy to throw around that he's listed on Wikipedia as a multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, producer, actor, and film director. Just throw in some dance and this guy's a quadruple threat. So, Omar puts out albums fast. Like, really fast. In 2016 alone, he released a whopping 13 albums, and 10 in 2017. Since going solo in 2004, Omar Rodriguez Lopez has put out 50 albums. That's 5-0. And that's excluding the compilation I'm holding in my hand right now. is called Telesterion, named for an ancient Greek temple that gradually grew to an enormous size over hundreds of years, which is apt given that the album is made up of tracks cherry-picked from his album releases over a six-year period. Given that Omar puts music out so frequently, it can be difficult to fully digest an album before another one gets dropped, a problem that I experienced over the past year with King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. That's why I absolutely love that he put out this compilation. It serves as a fantastic introduction to his solo body of work, and I'm really hoping that he does another one soon. Because since Telesterion's release, Omar has put out another 30 albums. And it's not like some of these albums are three, four, five tracks. They're all full length. And if I may take a moment, I would absolutely love to share with you, the CJSW audience, some of Omar Rodriguez Lopez's album titles, because some of these are just fantastic. You've got 